Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I've just had a great chat with Marcus Blackmore, the former CEO and chairman of Blackmore's. He's a real icon of the complementary medicine sector. He's also a great storyteller, and he talks about his father starting Blackmore's in Brisbane in the 1930s because he was really passionate about naturopathy. Marcus first joined the business at 18 and was CEO by 28. But along the way, he was sacked three times by his father and uh, explains why. He learned from his father how important it is to treat employees with care and respect and has been a real cornerstone of his leadership approach. Blackmores have had real success growing their business into Asia and particularly China. And Christine Holgate, who was CEO at the time, played a really big role in this. You may recall that Christine left OzPost for awarding the senior team with expensive watches. And Marcus explains why he flew to Canberra to support her during this Senate inquiry. He believes she was treated really badly by the board and the government. I think you'll be very surprised by who he nominates as star entrepreneurs. They're not the usual list. He's also a passionate and successful sailor and explains why this is so important to his well-being and also shares the lessons from sailing that he takes to the business world. He and his wife are generous philanthropists and explains why they get so much fulfillment out of this work. There's a lot to take away from this. Enjoy. Welcome, Marcus. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Marcus, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Look, I think care in the workplace is one, it's, it's almost a bastardised expression, you know. I mean, it, 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 can many, it can mean many things. It can mean security, it can mean honesty, it can mean trust, all those sort of things that aren't, aren't the same as, you know, measurement of, you know, return on assets and all those sort of things that we, we so often apply to business. I think it's terribly, terribly important. It is particularly important with women in your company. Now, I don't know what it was when the good Lord put us on the planet. He gave the women the responsibility for the family's health. You know, mostly the guys don't care. They don't care about their own health. You know, if the guy cuts himself, he sort of, <laughs> he won't worry about it until it gets all fested. But if a woman cuts herself or the children get hurt or something, she's there on the spot all the time. So how does that transpose to the workplace? Well, it's pretty important that they have good access to their children. So you've got to have a management's got to have a view that if that if mum suddenly says she can't come in, what we what we do in most workplaces, mum rings up and says, look, I'm sick today. Mum's not sick. She's just got a problem with the kids today. You know, the carer didn't turn up or can't, so she has to stay home and look after the kids. And we sort of breed this dishonesty thing. You know, they're Mm. they're being honest with you. So you've got to have a caring workplace that allows her to say, hey, I'm sick today. I'll make up the time later, Marcus, but, you know, I really need to stay home. That's Mm. fine. You know what I mean? 
So the other thing about, one of the things about caring, I suppose, is women are very concerned about security. Blokes don't care that much. Mm. Women are very concerned about family security and are more so, more so if if they've got children. Mm. So, but I think you've got to manage the workplace so that so that they can express those that level of care for the family. You know, have family days and invite all the family into the company and get the kids to come in and see where mum sits at work and things like that. So you, if you engage the family in that sense, then I think you'll demonstrate a level of caring to, to the people that work for you. Now, when it comes to security, look, I could go on about this for a long time. One of the things that Blackmores did years ago now at my behest was we implemented a plan of salary continuance. So I went to the insurance company and, you know, it was pretty expensive uh, insurance. And I said, well, what about I take the risk for the first three months? So if mum gets cancer and can't work, she knows absolutely that Blackmores will pay her pay, pay her full pay for the next three months. And then after that, we get salary continuance and we insure them so that after that they know they're going to get, I think it was like 70% of their salary. Now, that gives them a great deal of comfort. Now, that situation actually happened at Blackmore's. One of our women got cancer. Her son worked in the business. Mum was the main breadwinner sort of thing. And, she would, you know, she was going to struggle to pay the rent. So we sat down with her and said, don't worry about it. You've got to focus on getting well. Don't worry about the money. We'll fix that. So if you can demonstrate, all you have to do is demonstrate that once to your staff and it'll go through the whole place. Mm. All of a sudden you'll create a caring environment because other people will know in the organisation that you'll treat them the same way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's the caring sort of thing. And I guess there are a number of things you can do. You, you, you need, you've got to treat people with respect. And the people, you know, it's not their fault that they're the, picking up the papers, emptying the garbage bins, as opposed to being the managing director. But you, they, they all require equal level of respect. Mm. And that's not hard to do. I it's really you say- not hard to do. And little things like, you know, appear in, make sure that you go and have your lunch in the staff lounge with people. You know what happens when you have lunch in the staff lounge? You will learn more about your business than you will from any of your leadership in a bloody month, I can tell you. I heard you you say that you... Providing you've got that level of trust, that they Mm. feel comfortable, they can talk to you. Marcus, we've got all these out of stocks. We've got people ringing up and complaining, you know, whereas the manager of that division doesn't tell you that. Mm. Oh, yes, we've got some out of stocks. We're working on that, you know, sort of thing. It's, but they'll tell you that you're losing customers, if you like. You know, look, I'm making it up as we go. But anyway, uh, terribly, terribly important issue that you're I've heard, I've heard you say that you learned about care in the workplace from your father. What did you learn from him? You know, I learned a hell of a lot from my old man. You know, he was he was a, quite an amazing individual. He he was very disciplined. 
Um, he he taught me to care for staff. I remember once um, in the old days, you'd go and you'd go and sell your you know, car to a car dealer, and the car dealer would say, "Look, here's the deal, and I'll give you a bag of cash and whatever." And so I go back in the office, and I got this brown paper bag with cash in it because I just traded my car in for some special deal. So I said to the old man, I said, what do I do with this? And he, he turned around and looked at me and he said, you give it to the staff. So <clears throat> he was he was very focused on the people issues in the company. And that's, you know, that's all about culture. So, uh, yeah, my, my dad taught me that. He taught me a lot about leadership, I think. He taught me to respect women. I bashed my, I didn't bash her, I, I whacked my sister. I had a younger sister. And I whacked her one day and he, he sprung me. And then he, you know, like, I, you know, I was only a teenager or something. And he just, he leant back and he went, whack. <laughs> Hit me so bloody hard, I went through a fibro wall in the house. <laughs> and, uh, and he just turned around and said, you never hit a woman and walked away, you know. So some lessons you've had to learn pretty hard, I guess. <laughs> anyway, he was an amazing guy. He had wealth creation was not his issue. He wanted to build a naturopathic profession on his deathbed. He turned around to me and he said, son, the sad thing about my life is I haven't seen naturopathy as a true profession. Mm. And I've taken up that challenge in the last few years particularly We've now established my wife and I with a significant donation to Southern Cross University of many millions to set up a the Centre for Naturopathic Medicine at Southern yes. Cross University and they will graduate Masters of Naturopathy and maybe ultimately Doctors of Naturopathy and that will lift the profession to a whole new stage. We're strong supporters of Western Sydney University, the National Institute of Complementary Medicine there. So they're the sort of things that my father, if he was alive today, and you know, he died in 1977, but he'd be, he'd be proud of me. He wasn't always proud of me, but he'd be proud of me now, I reckon. I'm sure he would. And he was obviously a big influence on him, but I also read that he sacked you three times. <laughs> what was that yeah, about? Yeah, he sacked me three times. <laughs> I can tell you, let me tell you the story about the last time he sacked me because that's when I ended up at Johnson & Johnson. I, um, I, I thought, you know, I'd got out of the army. Uh, I thought I was super smart. I knew everything. You know, it was typical of young, young Turks, I suppose, in the business and uh, working for their fathers. You know, it's a com very common thing to happen. Anyway, we, was, we were selling toothpaste in those days. We used to sell 20,000 tubes a month. And it was in a blue, um, green and white thing that, looked like my father's palm olive shave cream, you know. So <laughs> I went and designed, I had designed a new pack. Now, in hindsight, I have to admit it was purple, but still. Anyway, I turn up with this thing. My old man didn't like it, just fobbed it off. So I'm sitting, I was, I was at home, I was living at home, and we had, we had one little bathroom for my mum and my father and myself and my sister, for the four of us. You know, every kid gets a, an ensuite these days sort of thing, you know. So anyway, I'm standing behind him and I said something like, well, if you're not going to listen to you, listen to me, you might as well get rid of me. 
and then I walked away. Then a couple of minutes later, he'd finished shaving and something. He walks out to the lounge room and he said, well, son, and, you know, fathers say this sort of thing, well, son, I've given you everything else in your life. I might as well give you that too. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, and then, and then he doesn't really mean that, you know. And then he turns around and he said, and I want you out of the house as well. <laughs> I've overdone it, you know. So anyway, I uh, it was all an amicable parting of the ways. Uh, you know, I took another week or two to sort out things at my desk and hand over to other people or whatever. It was only a small business then at that time. And then I became unemployed for something something like six months. I wanted to stay in our industry. Every time I applied for a job in the industry, they said, oh, you'll go back to your father, you know. So they wouldn't employ me. And then finally I got a job as a medical detailer for Johnson & Johnson, selling, of all things, contraceptives to obstetricians and gynaecologists and people like that, so, and general practitioners, of course, and then I'd call on pharmacies in the afternoon. So it was an interesting exercise, and I certainly learned a lot about the pharma industry. The pharma industry are Blackmore's biggest competitors. You know, mm. they offer health solutions, and so do we. We just offer mm. health solutions. So it was an interesting time in my life to be unemployed. And I lived under a house at Mossman in it like a bed sitter. And, uh, but I was all right. I wasn't broke. And I remember to this day, you know, we talk about defining, defining moments in your life. I could take you to the very spot where this happened in uh, Willoughby Road in Crow's Nest. And I was standing on the side of the road and I had a girlfriend that worked for Avis up there. And uh, so I was going up to see her because she, she used to do my CVs that didn't look that good at that stage of my life. You know, a couple of years in the Army didn't necessarily help. But anyway, the, um, I'm standing on the side of the road and there was some poor individual on the other side of the road who was obviously incapacitated and couldn't get across the road without somebody helping him. And I sat there and I looked at this poor bugger and I thought, you know, I've got a girlfriend, I've got a car, I've got a place to live, I'm not broke. And I suddenly thought about my life and uh, and it, it suddenly went from being unemployed and unhappy and all that sort of thing to the very next day, it, I changed my attitude having seeing this, this young guy with all those problems I got a job at Johnson & Johnson the very next day. Wow. Had a lot to do with the psychological attitude. So yeah. that was one of the defining, probably one of the few defining moments in my life when it came to career and that sort of thing. And what did you learn at Johnson & Johnson? Well, I learned that J&J actually trained their people really well. Mm. Um, look, I can, I can tell you a story, but... Uh, you know, I love telling stories. So you you uh, did a fairly thorough two weeks of uh, of training in the office and the various products that we sold, and and uh, we sold a product called Delphin Foam, which was a permicidal foam that we had to detail doctors. Right? Then you go out on the road with the sales manager when he does his detail, and then finally you get to go out on your own. So here I am, first day. I go to see a general practitioner down in Cronulla somewhere. And so I demonstrate to this, I have to demonstrate this, this particular, it's a beautifully presented 
in a glass bottle, a spermicidal, a foam and a nice plastic bottle. So I put it there and then you have to have, you have what's called like an inserter on the top of it. So the, the, the bottle is under pressure. So you're standing in and all this spiel comes out of your mouth that you've been, you know, taught in the last, in the last couple of weeks, right? So the spiel's coming out of my mouth and I've got this thing here and, I, you know, you put the inserter on and the spiel's coming out and then you, you push the thing over and what happened was like one of those whistles you have at the Royal Easter Show, you know, sort of thing. So the, at the end of it comes the, the inserter part of it and it was clear plastic. It was very well designed. So you could see the foam rising up in there. Well, I'm looking at this thing and I can see the foam oozing out of the bottom. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself while this spiel's coming out, I'm thinking to myself, at some stage in this presentation, I'm going to have to take that off the bottle. <laughs> so I get to think, I go, boom, I take it off while the bloody thing exploded. <laughs> the doctor's sitting opposite me with a suit on, as they did. And, you know, and I, got a, I got my handkerchief out here and I, I leaned over and I wiped the phone off, foam off his suit and I packed up my bag and I bug it off. So that was my, that was my first detail. So I actually learned a lot at J&J. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you recall, because I worked at J&J twice, once in the medical side, once on the consumer side in, in um, sales and marketing. And they had and they still have what's called the J&J Credo, yeah. And and basically what it was was that our first responsibility is to our mothers and babies who use our products and then to our employees and then to our shareholders and made shareholders last. And, and and the interesting thing about that, which was a little bit of research on it, it was I think brought together or was put forward in the in the 1930s. And it was one of the Johnson brothers that um, created it. And half the board resigned because he was putting shareholders last. But uh, it's it's turned out to be an incredible um, success element of the J&J organisation. And, uh, you know, they research each year to see how they're living up to that uh, credo. And it really shows the value of values and, um, yeah. and caring leadership. Yeah, I remember that. that was mm. a long time ago, but I remember the same thing. You're right. What, what uh, did you learn about leadership in the military? What did say that again? What What did you learn about leadership in the middle military? Well, I suppose one of the great lessons I learned was when I was at Church of England Grammar School in Brisbane. I was in the Air Cadets, and I remember to this day learning that the 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 most important discipline in our lives was self discipline, and I think that's the thing that's missing in our society today. We bring up the kids, you know, they, 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 the, the discipline largely comes from family, from mother and being brought up. But these days, my mother didn't have to work. We weren't wealthy, but my mother didn't have to work. These days, everybody wants to buy a house, so mum goes to work as well. So they've abrogated some of that responsibility of discipline to the school teachers. Now, half the school teachers are a bit left to centre anyway, and uh, and now we we don't have 
We don't have the cane anymore. When I went to school, every master in the junior school had a cane. You put it in, you didn't do your homework. Put your hand out, whack. <laughs> you know, well, no, that's capital punishment now. So we we've got rid of all of that sort of thing. And now what we find is the reaction is the kids are bashing up the school teachers. Never mind that. And okay, may well say I'm living in the past. But it's that discipline that I think we miss. The discipline that my father taught me by by hitting me so hard I went through the bloody wall. <laughs> you know, you, you only need you only need to that once you'll get it again. So um, I'm concerned that. A lot of the problems, I spent a lot of time with Ted Knoffs at the Wayside Chapel mm. and his focus, that his, his belief was that if we could teach young children, that the young, our youth of today, that if we could teach them self-discipline so that they could say no, that they're in a group of people and they start smoking dope or something, here, have a puff of this, they could say no. But they don't. They go with the they go with the group sort of thing, and and it's you know becomes group therapy if you like. And it's and I think it's it's unfortunate that we don't teach our youth enough self discipline so that they can say no. And that was the whole focus of the life education centres that Ted Knopf so beautifully started all these years ago. I was on the board. I just think he was an amazing individual. And, a, you know, a lovely man sadly had a stroke and, and a lot of his work's been taken up by Bill Cruz at the Exodus Centre in Sydney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm a long-time supporter um, financially, particularly for, for Bill Cruz. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we talk about entrepreneurship in, in business. If entrepreneurship is about coming up with a good idea and implementing the idea, then Bill Cruz, and for that matter, Father Chris Riley with his youth off the streets, they are great entrepreneurs. Mm. I give speeches about entrepreneurship. I always refer to those two guys. Mm. Bill Cruz, um, John Singleton went to the races one day and he won $100,000 some time ago. And he's a mate of Bill Cruz. So he goes to Bill and he says, now, listen, Bill, I won hundred grand today. If I give it to you, what will you do with it? And Bill said, I'll, I'll start a soup kitchen at Ashfield. And uh, so, so Singo gave him the 100000 and then another one of his parishioners gave him another 100000 and he set up this soup kitchen. Now, I, I've, I go to that soup kitchen. <clears throat> so it's really, it's, it's a, we've, my, my wife has a daughter and I was worried that, you know, she lives in a lovely home and, you know, I drive a fancy car and does she really, she doesn't want for anything in her life really, does she really appreciate the value of money? So I rang Bill. I said, Bill, I want to bring Caroline's daughter over and Caroline will come too. We want to come over and have lunch with all the, with all the people that, that he supplies lunch to. Now, he supplies, he does at least a thousand meals a day, either in the in the in the soup kitchen, um, or else he has a van, and Blackmore's provided one of the vans for him that, that with all the warming stuff, and he goes down and 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 feeds homeless people at night. Now, Bill, he does a thousand meals. It's a restaurant. He does a thousand meals a day. 
Nobody pays. Nobody is questioned whether they should or shouldn't be allowed to come in the front door. Most, virtually all his labour is free. A lot of the food he gets from people like Food Bank, I suppose, and so most of that's donated. Mm-hmm. If that's not entrepreneurship, I don't know what is. Yeah. Just, yeah. Look, he's just an amazing individual. Yeah. Anyway. You, you talked previously, Marcus, about the importance of self-discipline. How do you apply that self-discipline to yourself in terms of how you manage a day or run a day? Uh, not very well, I have to say. <laughs> in fact, I think the the, uh, the best description is I'm hopeless. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, my, my assistant always struggles to get me organised. She'll put me down, you know, the, the, I'm knowing this was coming up, she said, oh, they've sent you a list of questions. You've got to go through that. See, she's, she's been at me for the last two weeks. You've got to go through that thing. So I did it this morning, an hour ago. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, I don't have a lot of self-discipline. And you know what? When it comes to chief executives and whatnot, I think you've, the, the, the real successful chief executives are the ones, we call it management by walking around, mm-hmm. are the ones that are engaging with people but not necessarily doing, doing the actual work themselves, listening to people, understanding what, how important it is to people on the factory floor that, they, that they, they've got a regular source of income and little things like that. Having, having lunch in the canteen and having a, have a culture and environment where people can talk to you. That's the role of a chief executive, um, more so than it is being able to sit down and have meetings and run meetings and whatnot. So uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm not great at the, at the self-discipline. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, Factor C. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. Somehow things work, don't they? You know, you've been very successful. You've grown the business hugely. You've, you know, entered into Asia in a big way and China in a big way. So somehow things have happened. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think that is? Somebody said to me the other day, how did you make all your money? I said, I'm buggered if I know. <laughs> I said, I don't pack the pills. I don't do those jobs in the plats. I said, uh, they, they do those things. But I have an undying belief that if you look after people, they'll look after you. That's mm-hmm. why I'm a wealthy person today. Yeah. You know, well, so simple. You know what the problem is? It's too simple. 
It's mm. but we want to we want to complicate things. Mm. Uh, uh, I think I know that you know in, in my working life I've had some outstanding people work for me, and I've lost some of them. You know, I lost Christine Holgate. She went off to do to do Run Australia Post. She's had a few challenges there of late, as we know. Uh, Absolutely, a job, but you know she's a beautiful person, and uh, you know I I'm, I don't doubt that if she was on this call, she'd uh, she'd say that I've contributed to her success. Mm. And that's what I want to do, and if I can do those sort of things, they'll they'll contribute my success. Let me tell you a story. First time she walks into the company, very first very first week, I said, now listen, Christine, I've just, I've organised to go to the other states and have a night with uh, with our principal principal customers in pharmacy. I said, it might be a good opportunity if you came. No, it's a bit short notice. might be a good opportunity if you came with me and you get an opportunity to meet our biggest customer. She said, I'd love to come. So where we go, we go to Melbourne. I make a bit of a speech, she makes a speech or something. Anyway, some smart bloody pharmacist up the back of the room in the question and answer time, he gets up and he said, Christine, he said, um, we know Marcus, why would you want to work for him? <laughs> she turned around and she said, she said, you know, his office is right next to mine. She said, I don't know another person in this industry that knows more about this business than he does. And she said, I've got access to that knowledge base any time I want it, any time I want it. And then she made a very defining statement. She said to this guy, and, you know, he's got more interest in making me successful than I have in making him successful. Mm. That's the mm. of Christine Holgate. Absolutely. And before we came on air, you shared how Andrew Banks helped you recruit Christine. And I previously worked with Morgan Banks and now Andrew. Can you tell us a little bit about that recruitment process? Yeah, he's, um, I've known Banksy for many, many years. And I, uh, um, he, he had somebody, he did a lot of work for Blackmores and he had somebody allocated to the account and, and one thing. And next. So I said to her at one stage, you know what, I bought her the book, Linda Goodman's Star Signs. Now, I'm not a great advocate of star signs, but I believe there's something in it. Mm -hmm. And Indian astrology or, or Indonesian astrology or whether it's Western astrology, I think you can type people at times. So I was having a bit of a problem in the company. We, we were getting people who weren't suited to the particular job. So I went to Andrew and I said, Andrew, what... What can we do to refine our, our process of employing people? Anyway, he said, well, you could do, you could do this Myers-Briggs assessment. And I didn't know what the hell Myers-Briggs was. <laughs> anyway, I said, well, I'll tell you what, and, you know, you might think I'm full of my own importance, but I said, well, let me do the test and then I'll tell you whether it works or not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I did do the Myers-Briggs stuff and it really typed me very well. Then I tried to tell this, this uh, account executive that if you would have combined Myers-Briggs with astrology, if you knew the hour they were born and got a really good astrologist to tell you, I said you'd have the whole game sewn up. I don't think, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was the greatest idea, but anyway. So, and well, how did you... 
with Andrew. And how did you feel when he first presented Christine for the first interview with you? Well, I uh, I think I liked her straight off. And uh, my chairman at the time, Steve Chapman, is an outstanding individual and very good at typing people. The the pair of us, after we'd done, after we'd had a couple of interviews with Christine, she was in the final, whatever it was, two or three, I don't remember. And I said, uh, um, he said to me, well, what do you think? No, I said to him first, what do you think? And he said, he said, well, she's certainly different. He said, what do you think? I said, well, I reckon if we employ Christine, I reckon I'd be sitting there hanging on to the reins. <laughs> and uh, there was certainly a fair bit of that going through the nine years that we spent together. <laughs> she's a disciplined woman. She's really good. She did a lot of good things for Blackmores, and I'm proud to say that she she's still a great friend today and, and that's why I went to Canberra to support her the other day when the, uh, when the Senate inquiry was on. So, anyway, she's in good shape. And I understand you played a bit of a role in helping her transition to the Australia Post role. Is that uh, the Oz Post role? Is that uh, you mentioned something before we we started that uh, you'd heard about this Oz Post role coming up, and you suggested that she look at it. Look, look I uh, for many years I was. Uh, on the board and ultimately chairman for a number of years of Australia's uh, um, sail training ship, uh, which was a youth development program run by the Navy. The ship was run by the Navy. It was a wonderful place to be and to see those, you know, the Australian youth on the ship. The, the Brits gave us the ship in 1988 as a bicentennial gift. The, the ship wasn't big enough, actually. We had far more people far more youth wanting to go on the ship than we could cater for. And hopefully the Australian government, they, you know, they seem to be able to find a lot of money at the moment. Hopefully they can find a bit of money for a new ship and I think that's probably on the cards. Um, I had a friend on that, one of the other board members is John Dixon in Melbourne at a trucking company. He's sitting in a restaurant one day and he's listening to two guys at the next table discussing whether Christine Holgate could run Australia Post. So he rings me up, he said, and, I, and he just, you know, mentioned it to me. Now, you know, I had a relationship with Christine. There was no secrets between us. You know, it was an open, um, an open arrangement of, of trust of one another. And I know damn well if she was on this, on this, uh, she, on this line, she, she'd share the same view. And uh, so I just said to her, now, Christine, you, you're going home to see Beryl, her mum. Mum lives in England. I said, what you need to do, Christine, is sit down and think, where do you want to be in five and ten years' time? And if Blackmores is a stepping stone to that, you stay here. If it's not a stepping stone to where do you want to be in five and ten years' time, then go to Australia Post. Mm. Anyway, she went away and thought about it for a week and then come back and came back and sat back. Sat down, sat down with me and said she was going to make the move. It was obviously a much bigger job. It paid more and she, she took the job at a significant less salary than, uh, uh, than what Ahmed Fahua did, pre, who previously ran it. But Ahmed did, I think he did a lot of good things for Australia Post. Australia Post was stuck in a rut selling, yeah. selling stamps. When did you go and I got a parcel delivered the other day with stamps on it. Mm. And for ages, you know. <laughs> you know, where did 
the only time you ever hear of telegrams is during a wedding or something. So <laughs> all those revenue things for Australia Post were disappearing. You know, people weren't writing letters. Mm. You know, all the other, you know, digital alternatives now, we didn't have to write letters. So Ahmed Pahua, I think, had a lot to do with trans transposing or changing Australia Post to be a logistics company. And then Christine took up the challenge when she joined it. And, you know, that it's, it's amazing. It's still a government business. Mm. They have something like 60% market share against the likes of DHL and big international companies. They've done mm. an outstanding job. Mm. And, I, and it will continue. Well, the problem is Christine's no longer there because I think the chairman and the, and the prime minister didn't help her cause. And uh, so now she's gone to um, toll. Mm, mm. You know, how stupid is that the government made <laughs> a woman who knows more about logistics than most people and now she's gone to the government's biggest competitor because the prime minister wouldn't say, wouldn't use the word apology, which I, I mean, I quite like. Morrison, but uh, I think he failed in that in that particular situation. He, all he needed to do was say, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, I want to sit down with you, Christine, and, uh, but he didn't want to do that. But anyway, that's life. What makes uh, Christine Holgate such a great leader? Well, one of the, one of the things, let me tell you a story. I like telling stories. One day I wanted Christine to come to a function that night. And uh, she said, oh, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? She said, well, um, I'm going to have dinner with, I can't remember the person's name, let's call her Mary. Mary had had cancer and, uh, and she was struggling with cancer and Christine had absolutely helped her so much that she turned around to Christine and, look, she was, she was not a senior executive of the company, Turn around to Christine. She said, you know, I'm so appreciative of everything you've done for me. Do, would you, I'd, I'd like you to come to my house. I'd love to cook dinner for you. Mm. So I'm sitting there because I want to go, I want her to come to some bloody function or something, and she's going to somebody's house for them to cook dinner for her. That, mm. That's why Christine <coughs> was a successful manager. Yeah. That one incident, that one incident flies through the organisation like you wouldn't believe. So all of a sudden everybody in the organisation has got a whole renewed respect for Christine because mm -hmm. respect is something you earn and that's how she, how she would earn respect. Mm. Yeah. Simple. You know, it's really simple. It is mm -hmm. so simple. I keep saying that. But it's simple, little simple things like that to make all make all the difference in an all. They, they really do. And and Gallup, who've been looking at you know employee engagement and discretionary effort for forty years, they found that the the one question that most predicts whether someone's engaged or not is my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. Yeah. More people that strongly agree with that, the higher the profit, the productivity, customer service levels, everything. And I know that that's one of the really key reasons why you've been successful. And I've heard you talk about the three P's of, of leadership. Can you just uh, explain what they are, please? Um, 
Well, I was asked one at some stage in my working life, maybe 10 years ago or more, why is Blackmore successful? And I, I stopped and thought about it for a minute. I said, look, I, I call it the three Ps, people, product and passion. And I think they're the elements of a successful company. If you haven't got the right people engaged in the right job, appropriately rewarded, then you'll go nowhere. If you haven't got, if you're trying to sell 100 milligram vitamin C when the world wants 1,000 milligram, you're wasting your time. So you've got to have the right product. And then you've got to have, but the underlying thing and the most important element of all is passion. And I think what I've been able to develop in that company over the over the years is an element of passion and belief in what we're doing, a sense of purpose of why you get out of bed in the morning. Mm. And it's not just to make money, because mm. as I said before, if that's the sole purpose, then the world will be a poorer place. Mm. So deals into those three things. Now I can elaborate on the on the, the biggest issue of course, is passion, but it's, it's the people you employ. It's the mm. people that have made the business successful, not me. I'm only, I'm only sitting there like a, like a, what do you call those, Pinocchio with the... Yeah, a puppeteer. That's your job as a CEO. To be, I've never thought about it before, but you're right, to be the puppeteer and because the people down there, they're the ones doing the work. Yeah. Uh, in terms of self-care, I know that you're a very keen and successful sailor. Why, why do you enjoy sailing? Um, one of the things I enjoy about sailing, as soon as I get on my boat, I forget about work. So it's a, it's a great effort for that, if, for want of a better description, to use the vernacular of work-life balance. Um, but it's also, there's great similarities in running a successful sailing team as there is a successful business team. I steer my own boat. And I guess that's the, the relevance with the company. I'm steering the company. But the steerer is not necessarily the most important guy on the boat. You can have you can have a dud steerer, but if you but and a very good tactician and you can still do well. But if you you don't need to have the best steerer in the world. And uh, it's you're so dependent on the team. Mm. And if you haven't got the team, if you haven't got regular crew that don't, you know, that then you you won't win regularly. Mm. And I've been fairly successful um, in sailing as a as a team. To, you know, we won a number of national championships and things like that. And it's all because of you know doing the training and. and mm. Uh, then buying the best sales you can and having the best equipment and and uh, but it's not necessarily having the best steerer. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're sailing in the America's Cup, if you've got a dud steerer, you're not in the game. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the average sort of sailing that I do, the steer is not as important as some people think it is. I heard another story where you were sailing or in uh, Fiji and you ended up going to a church on a remote island ah. and, and you were asked to come up and say something and you started off by saying, yeah. I'm very disappointed with you people. That's right. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? <laughs> well, that's a good story. The, uh, 
My wife and I um, particularly enjoy going to the the, uh, uh, the the other countries in the South Pacific and, you know, one of the great experiences in my life was diving with the whales in uh, um, in Tonga. But in the this in Fiji, Fiji's got two big islands. Mm. On the west coast is the Mamanukas and the Asawas, where all those where all the resorts are. Mm. On the east coast, most people don't realise there is equally another chain of islands, but they called the Lau L A U group. Now the Lau people are rather unique. You know, every every football team in a, in Sydney's got. Uh, the great big black guys, <laughs> you know, because we can't find enough good white guys to get. <laughs> and uh, so they're all they're all in our teams and sending money home. I think that's all wonderful. But in the in the Lao group, they don't play football like the rest of Fiji. They actually play cricket. And the interesting thing was the first prime minister when they got. Um, uh, when they first got federation when they, from the UK, they um, the first prime minister came from the Lao group and he was a cricketer of some note. So when you go to the Lao group, every village has got two things, a church and a cricket pitch. <laughs> My wife loves going to the church. They sing so beautifully. She's a good Catholic like that. So we go to this church on a Sunday on one of the islands in the Lao group now, previously, you were not allowed to go to the Lao group. The Lao people said, we don't want our islands all developed like those islands on the, on the uh, west coast. So you couldn't get a permit to go there. Then about seven years ago, they opened it up. So I was keen to go there because they couldn't let us go there before. So we go to this one particular island and we go to the church on the Sunday. Now, you know, I've got four crew and I've got... Uh, two other families, two other couples with me. So we're a fair number in the congregation. And, of course, the the, the pastor up the front, he, he's carrying on in some bloody language that I don't understand, and I'm deaf anyway, so I'm not hearing everything that's going. My wife's sitting beside me. She starts whacking me. She said, he wants to know whether you want to say something. I said, oh, I missed that. So I get up and I go out. <laughs> I go out to the altar and then be, between getting up and going out to the altar, I think, what the hell am I going to say to these people? <laughs> so I started off and I said, you know, you people disappoint me. I said, I've spent my life working hard, I believe, because I wanted to buy a new car or I wanted to buy a bigger house or I wanted to buy another boat and I'm pretty good at that department. But I had a genuine belief and it's true. I had a genuine belief by doing that, I'd be happier. I said, but then when I come to Fiji, I said, I notice that you don't have any of those assets, but I do notice that you're all very happy. And I said, it really disappoints me that you're so happy. You don't have those assets. And I've spent my life doing, you know, anyway. So that it went from, oh, what's he on about to appreciation. I said, never, ever, never, ever be uncomfortable about the culture that you have in your community. You have a far greater culture than what we do in our community. You know, mm. all help one another. They look after one another. There's a bit of a downside with that in one sense 
because the moment you give people, uh, those people money, they're going to come back and ask you for more. <laughs> yeah. But they, uh, they have a sense of what's yours is mine to a certain extent. You know, it's not as blatant as that. But I just think that's beautiful. Now, we, my wife and I went to an island, Fulaga, in the southern part of the Lao group, and the, 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 we went to the school. We love going to the schools. We take them all the crayons and pencils and paper and stuff that they all need. Anyway, we go to this particular school and the toilet blocks bugger. You know, the kids have to go out in the, out in the bush. So we gave them 5,000 bucks. That's what they needed to, to rebuild the, the toilet block in that school. Well, I can't tell you the level of appreciation we got the next time we went back to that village was unbelievable. So much mm-hmm. so that we then, we then contributed uh, quite a bit of money to build a, uh, it, was, it was really a community centre, but we called it an evacuation centre. And by calling it an evacuation centre and using it for that purpose, the Fiji government also contributed. So the, the, I can tell you, um, Mare is one of the women there that sort of befriended Caroline and, you know, they exchanged things on, on social media from time to time. This all, this, these people in this, they only have internet when, when in the school's on. The school's the only place that has internet. They have one boat that goes to that, goes to that island once a month. And if you miss that boat, that's it. So. Anyway, they, they had a, the cyclone went through there. They didn't get hit as badly as some parts of Fiji, but they rang Caroline and said, We're, we've just come out of the evacuation centre um, because of this, and we, we just wanted to say thank you for helping us. You know? Amazing. I can tell mm-hmm. you, the amount of money I spent and the amount of money I've given to charities, it was a pittance in comparison to what we've done in the past. Yeah. The reward is enormous. Yeah. I hope I'm not being self-serving about this, but, you not know, it's not difficult. And it, it's not difficult to help people at times and uh, and they will be forever grateful. We go back there. I mean, the, the there's no such thing as a red carpet, but uh, <laughs> the red carpet comes out. They put a barbecue for us. Mm. They don't say so the pigs in the ground. They, they don't have knives and forks. You eat with your fingers. They don't have plates. They make plates out of I don't know banana leaves or something, you know. But they sing, and they most of them have got a musical instrument. So you can imagine the barbecue goes over pretty well. <laughs> My wife's got a little tiny tattoo on her wrist as a result of that. Wow. Wow. Things that we can't wait to get back to that village, you know. And we'll take a whole lot of things like books. They love they love paperbacks and books that you you know you've got sitting in the house that you haven't read for 10 years, all that sort of thing. And they just appreciate it so much. It's just that just those little things that are so well appreciated by people when they haven't got it. So it's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Marcus. It brings you down to a certain level. And I think that's one of the reasons why I go to the Pacific. It makes me stop and think about how lucky we are in life, you know, mm. have all the, the all the uh, all the things that we do around us, and and how safe we are in our communities, and and what sort of medical services, all those sort of things that we enjoy, 
and perhaps take for granted too much. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Marcus. I've loved your stories and your history and, and uh, your three Ps of leadership and the many examples where you show that uh, leaders, that people, the actual real part of the business, you know, the, the three Ps really emphasise that. Knowing what you know now, and I understand you're about 78 or so, what advice? 76. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what advice would you give your 18-year-old self where you just got your first job at Blackmoors? What advice would you give old self knowing what you know now? You better have a bit more respect for your father than I did at the time, <laughs> I suppose. But, uh, I mean, that's typical of all, you know, young, young guys working for their father or whatever. I learned, I failed university. Um, I absolutely believe in continuing education. And uh, I think it's important that young people find something that they really enjoy doing. Mm. I learned very early in the piece that I wasn't good at doing things that I didn't really like doing. Mm. So I had to go to, I would go to university and my father wanted me to do science. So I do mathematics. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> Standard, you know, so I failed mathematics. I passed physics because I really like physics because we're sort of working things out. I failed to turn up for the zoology. I like zoology. I failed to turn up for the exam. I, I, I turned up a day late. So obviously I wasn't that keen. And anyway, my dad turned around to me and said, well, that's it, son. You know, I'm not paying you. If you want you want to go to university, you pay your own way. And I thought, oh, I've buggered this, so I better. So I started going at night. I thought it was the right thing to do to have a university education. So I started going at night. The only problem was I go to bed early and I get up early. Well, you know, I'm sitting there in the class at night half asleep, so I learned bugger all. Anyway, so that didn't last too long. In the meantime, I'd been called up and, and I'd been conscripted in the Australian Army, so away I went to... Uh, the army for two years but it really is about doing things that you want to do and then you'll get out of bed in the morning then you'll be successful but if you're doing things that you don't like doing you'll never be successful so I think that's I think that's probably the most important message to young people my my own stepdaughter she was going to uh, she was doing commerce at uh, at tech or at uni or something, and she she wasn't liking it. And I sat down with her one day and said, Amy, just forget it. Just go and do something. So she went and did fashion because her mother did fashion and she was able to get into um, UTS to do, to do fashion, and she really enjoyed that. Then just recently, she's in her late, late 20s now, recently she and her mother went away for a week. She came home and she announced that she was working for a company in fashion, you know, importing dresses and stuff that you do in fashion and on selling it and one thing and the next. And she said, I've had enough of that. She mm -hmm. said, I want to be a primary school teacher. Mm -hmm. so it has to go back to university. So I said, look, I'm more than happy. I think that's really wonderful mm -hmm. because, I, you know, I, I've alluded to the fact before, I think, I think our education system for young people suffers somewhat. And I just think it's wonderful that somebody like that would be prepared. She's going to go back to university. She's halfway there now. 
to do a master in, you know, education or something. And I think she'll make a fantastic school teacher. So, so, and and she's dead keen about the whole thing. Well, so that I think that's the important part of life. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Marcus. Thank you very much. Pleasure. No, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.